All right. Good morning again. I'll welcome you back to your seats. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, let me invite you to turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, really close to the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one, or this next 45 minutes is going to be fairly boring. You can follow along or get distracted by going somewhere else in the Bible. There's Bibles in front of you in the seat backs, uh, underneath actually, and uh, it's on page 1013. If you don't have a Bible at home um, that you can read, you can feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you. Uh, as Jim Hall, one of our elders, likes to say, Bible is our middle name, Village Bible Church. So we would like you to have that Bible. Also, if you use the YouVersion app, I apologize. I did publish the event, but I didn't follow Pastor Ron's instructions, and I did it this morning, and it's not up. So maybe in the middle of the sermon, while you're looking on your phone, only at the uh, Bible app, of course, perhaps it might go live, and you can follow the event uh, there. But we are in the book of James, chapter 5, and today only one verse, verse 12. I know some of you just got nervous. Uh, Yes, just one verse, Um, but we are closing in on the end of our series about real faith in real life from Jesus' brother James. And so uh, as we like to do, I'm going to read our passage for today, which is much shorter, and then we'll pray. And we'll dive right in. So James 5, verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12 says this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for air conditioning. We thank you, I think, for comfortable seats. Pray that you would um, guide us this morning as we look at your word. Pray that you would guide um, my speaking and our hearing. Uh, Help us not to be merely those who hear, but to be those who do. That we would follow up on what you have told us this morning. Lord, and for those this morning who um, are not believers, who are on the fence, who are maybe interested in Christianity, or maybe they got dragged here by somebody, Lord, I pray that they would hear your grace and your love for them this morning. Uh, please help us to um, benefit from your word, if, even if that means um, to be uh, pierced like Fred prayed for earlier. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I think that one tendency of uh, some in our culture, and maybe it's some various segments, I haven't figured out which ones, um, like to use the phrase, I swear. Um, or something similar, right? When you're trying to get across an important point, you say, I swear, or you'll swear on something to intensify it. Um, You'll swear on your mother's grave. You'll swear on a Bible. You'll swear whatever. We we tend to do that when we want to be understood or um, we want to have a hearing. Or when you were a kid, maybe you said something like, cross my heart. Right? Yeah, you did something like that to emphasize that you really were going to um, to follow through. Or maybe you did a pinky promise, right? Which is the ultimate, of course. Because when you lock pinkies, you know, you're not going to break that. But th- this can go in, in lots of different directions in the way that we use our language. But what James has for us this morning is pointing out to us our integrity in our words. Our integrity in our words. Uh, Craig Blomberg says in his commentary on the book of James, he says this, It is sad to see how American culture has deteriorated in less than three generations. Before World War II, a gentleman's handshake could often substitute for a written agreement. In much of the last half century, formal contracts were needed before one could trust a business person's word, but then one could usually count on it. Today, even written contracts are frequently broken, to such an extent that in some circles people do not even perceive the process to be unethical. Societies ultimately collapse when too many people lose their verbal integrity. So Christians must remain at the forefront of those whose word can be trusted unquestioningly. Not to mention uh, the fact that we live in an age where this is intensified because of the devices in our hands 
or the computers on our desk, where the opportunity for our words to travel uh, is, has been made so quick and so good in some ways and so destructive in others. This is the issue that James is dealing with here. You, you'll, you'll see in the passage that he says, swear, he says, oath. He uses these words, and we need to make sure that we understand what the, that meant in their time so that we don't confuse ourselves this morning. And the first thing we need to say is that although we will never endorse profanity, this is not talking about swear words, okay? So we could go to many other places in Scripture where you could argue that you should not use swear words, but here this is not talking about cussing. Okay, it's not talking about profanity or swear words. It's talking about something different than that. So if that's where your mind traveled at the beginning, we can talk offline about that, but this is not where the thrust of James's passage is headed. And I think that when we look at this verse and we look at what James has already said about speech, remember about the tongue? He talked about the tongue in chapters uh, 2 and 3. And we've already seen how important speech is in conflicts in the church. We see that that James comes back again to this issue of speaking. What does our speech do? So kind of the overarching big idea of this passage that you'll see in your notes is that rather than using oaths to verify our honesty, Christians should consistently speak the truth simply from a heart of integrity. I'll say that again. Rather than using oaths to verify our honesty, Christians should consistently speak the truth simply from a heart of integrity. That kind of encapsulates what James is saying in this verse and has said in the rest of his letter. And also this morning, because we're only going to one verse, we'll also travel a little further in the scriptures to see what else God's word has to say about this topic. That's really important for us to note at the outset though. Okay, so I want you to look at verse 12 and let's look just briefly at the first three words. James says, but above all, and if you're, if you're reading your Bible carefully, if you're reading a, a newspaper article or a magazine article or uh, on the internet, you're reading a, a, a body of work, you'll notice transition phrases and you'll notice how things swing or hinge to different topics or to different subtopics. And here it is fairly clear that James is moving to a different topic by saying, but above all. And what he is saying here, I think, in point one, is that it is dangerous and unhelpful to frequently add oaths to prove our honesty. It's not just an admonition not to or a command not to. It is dangerous and unhelpful to frequently add oaths to prove our honesty. Maybe you can think of sentences that you've said or sentences that you've heard even recently. No, no, I swear, I swear, I promise. These are the kinds of things that that we say to try to intensify our truth-telling, or our honesty. Now, the question here is, does James think that this is the most important part of his letter? Is that why he says, above all? It would seem to to place it in a priority above everything? And and that may be partially the case here, and, and the commentators were split on trying to understand this. But there's a few ways to understand above all. It might be, and your version might differ on this because it is hard to to figure out, but it also might be like a summary of all that James has said so far about speech. Uh, remember, these, these are churches that James is affiliated with, that he knows, perhaps he planted them, or he, he has a connection to these churches. So obviously he knows more of the context than we do 2,000 years later. Perhaps he is summarizing what he has already said about speech. Perhaps because he knows the specifics of the church's difficulties that we don't know, maybe it was to these churches a huge stumbling block in these churches, and he wants to single out this practice. Perhaps that is the case. Another thing to realize is that in other ancient Greek writings, this phrase is kind of like a stylized way to say something like, now to wrap things up, or or maybe a little more crass in conclusion. Um, but this is more of a stylized way of getting towards the end of his arguments. Um, and the Apostle Paul usually uses a different phrase. He usually says, finally which is hilarious because usually there's like a lot more after the finally. Um, But to each his own. James waits till closer to the end here. But above all, so we're not exactly sure, but he is is clearly moving us toward wrapping this thing up. So as he says, above all, he may mean that he's trying to emphasize this one 
phrase. Some people try to say, well, it's not connected to what came before and it's not necessarily connected to what comes after. But we know from the Apostle Paul's writings and even from Peter that sometimes at the end of letters, and perhaps we do this in emails or in text messages, right at the end, you kind of like remember a few things and bullet point it there at the end really quick. Like at the end of 1 Thessalonians, for example, Paul does this with lots and lots of short uh, um, commands. So perhaps that's what's happening. But whatever the case, you'll notice the next words in verse 12 that he employs are my brothers. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about how he used that phrase three times in the previous five verses. Now it's four times in six verses. My brothers, he's pointing this out. Brothers and sisters, my family, my siblings in Christ. He's making this a family issue. So when we start to talk about oaths and swearing and speech in this manner, we must understand that it starts with the church. So we cannot start this verse and applying it by looking outside. Wow, those movies have so many bad words. Wow, speech is coarsened in public. People just drop F-bombs all the time. We're not doing that yet. What we're doing is we're focusing on us. Our tendency oftentimes is to, as sometimes self-righteous religious people, is to think that all the problems are out there because we're the good ones. And what I would urge us to do here is James is saying, brothers, this is our problem. This is our issue. We need to think about this. We need to be careful. So let's start with ourselves. Let's think about the church. Let's think about our church. Let's think about each other. Let's think about ourselves personally. And so as James begins to move into this topic, he uses uh, uh, the command, do not swear. And then later on, he says, by any other oath. And so he makes mention of the word swear and of the word oath. What is an oath? Here's one uh, theologian's attempt at defining it biblically. Oaths are solemn declarations that invoke God as a witness of one's statements and promises, inviting him to punish should one be lying. So this is a solemn thing. This is not something that we just blithely skip into, which I think is automatically a rebuke of how we use the term, I swear. I swear to you. I swear this. No, I swear, I swear. We're just throwing these things around where in the scripture oaths, I'll read that again, are solemn declarations to that invoke God as a witness of one's statements and promises, inviting him to punish should one be lying? And so automatically, this is a very serious issue. And that what was going on in the church was not just one thing to talk about, but James really wanted to zero in on it and talk about oaths. And so his first, his first words to them are, do not swear. Just a, a blanket imperative. There's a command. Don't swear. And we need to be careful here is that some have taken James to mean that we should never, ever, 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 ever take an oath. You know, we should never swear by anything else. And, and, and that is not how we would read the rest of Scripture because in, throughout, throughout Scripture we see oaths used. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uses God's oath uh, as a very important theme throughout the book, that God has taken oaths. We see oaths used throughout the Scriptures and even the Old Testament law makes provision for how oaths are to be used. For example, Numbers chapter 30 is an entire chapter about vows. The whole chapter is outlining how vows are to be made and to be kept. So oaths are not out of bounds in general. But James is not dealing with oaths in general here. He is dealing with a specific issue. What he is dealing with, it seems, is that people are using oaths either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, in trying to beef up their statements and their honesty. And there's some different ideas about what that would have looked like. And some of it could be as surface level as just trying to get your point across and emphasize that you're actually telling the truth, which is problematic in itself, and we'll get there. But another thing that, that we might connect with what has gone before, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, in the first two chunks of chapter 5, we talked about the oppression of the church by the rich, the wicked rich who were oppressing those who were poor. And then lastly, we talked about how Christians should respond to oppression and persecution with 
patience, and endurance. Perhaps what is happening here is that because of persecution, because of oppression, the churches were seeking to, whether talking to government officials, whether defending themselves, or whether within their own community, trying to beef up their statements by controlling the future. By making a a future-oriented promise, that's what a promise is, I guess, future-oriented, is to make a promise and to try to control the future so that things would not get out of hand. And we do this often when we want to, when we're impatient. When we're impatient with what God is not doing or what's not happening in our life, sometimes we want to step in and, and take control. And so perhaps they were making oaths or swearing oaths to take control of their future because of the pressure and the persecution that they were under. What is happening is also um, the fact that the church was not an honest place, apparently. And because they were not an honest place, that automatically created problems of trust, specifically in times of persecution. When the pressure is on, the church needs to trust each other more. But if this church couldn't trust one another, then we have some serious problems in this church. I want you to turn with me back to the Old Testament really quick. The book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, which features the the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are listed here for the first time in Exodus chapter 20. And I want you to see a connection between what James is saying and what Moses said 1,500 years before. Exodus chapter 20. The third commandment is in verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I think you can see some of the echoes in this verse in James from Exodus chapter 20. There's the promise of judgment for the one that takes the Lord's name in vain. But often we have applied this in our modern context to stop cussing. Don't say, oh my God, and don't use the Lord's name that way. And that surely covers that. But often what would happen in the Old Testament is that the Lord would be invoked in an oath And if you broke that oath, what you were in essence saying is the Lord's name is not worth enough for me to keep my promise. And so by throwing the Lord's name into that promise, you're making the Lord's name empty. You're making the Lord's name vain. Notice that what James is saying is talking about swearing and being under oath. There's definitely a connection between using the Lord's name in vain and the oaths that were being made in the churches that James was referring to. Now, as you're in the Old Testament still, go to the next book, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. And we have mentioned throughout this series on James that James seems to have been doing his devotions in Leviticus 19 when he wrote this letter because so many of his concerns seem to be um, previewed in Leviticus 19 when we talked uh, about the oppression of the poor, when we talked about um, our speech, when we talked about injustice, when we talked about loving our neighbor, many of these things come from Leviticus chapter 19. So look at verse 11. Moses tells the people of Israel, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Speech. Verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely. I think there's an implication there that There are places and times where it's okay to swear by the Lord's name truly. Okay? In fact, that is what we get from the the third commandment as well. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. But that implies that there is a right way to take the Lord's name and to invoke the Lord's name. So what this is is a caution. It's a break on us not going to using the Lord's name all the time. Verse 12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane... The name of your God. I am Yahweh. We don't want to invoke God's name just to guarantee our future. Or to throw God's name onto a promise in order to make ourselves look more honest than we are. That is using the Lord's name in vain. We see examples of this in the book of 1 Samuel. You don't have to turn there, but... Uh, King Saul does this when he, may, he, he takes a rash oath and says, if anybody eats any food today, they'll be put to death. 
well, his son Jonathan didn't hear the oath that's made over the whole army, and he took some honey for himself uh, in the midst of battle to give himself strength. And, uh-oh, now we've got a problem because the king said if anyone does that, there's an oath, and Jonathan did it, so now the king has to execute his son. It was a, a vain oath. It was an oath taken in vain. And the people of God recognize this and rise up against Saul, and don't even, they don't let him put his son to death because of the ridiculousness of that oath. David does this in 1 Samuel 25. David's on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill him because he knows that David will be the next king. And David, out in the wilderness, runs into a wicked man named Nabal, who takes him off. And David makes a vow that he's going to wipe out Nabal and all of his men. And the only thing that stops him is Abigail, Nabal's wife, who comes out and pleads with him that his oath was taken foolishly. He should not have sworn. David repents of that and says, thank you for stopping me. I should not have done that. Side note that he marries her. But that, that is another example in the Old Testament of a foolish oath, a foolish swearing that happens. Another place that I want you to see why this is so important, why are oaths so important, is Joshua chapter 9. Go to the book of Joshua chapter 9. It's the sixth book in the Bible, pretty early on in your copy of God's Word. So Joshua chapter 9. It's right after Deuteronomy, right before Judges. Joshua chapter 9. And as the children of Israel have entered the promised land, they've conquered Jericho, the walls came crumbling down, they're beginning to expand into the land that God promised to them. And in chapter 9, some really uh, sneaky Canaanites decide, you know what, this is not going to go well for us, so let's dress up, let's send our most... Uh, dramatic theater people and go appeal to the Israelites and make a covenant with them to, to swear an oath to make an alliance or a treaty. Now, it's very interesting that in the text, um, it's very clear that the Israelites did all of this without asking the Lord. Perhaps they've gotten overconfident because of their victories, but they have now forgotten to ask the Lord about it and they enter into a treaty or a covenant with them. Three days later, they find out, oops, those are the people that God told us to wipe out. So notice this. God said, go in there and wipe out the Canaanites for the land that I'm giving to you. The Israelites make a treaty with some of the people they're supposed to wipe out. Well, they made a mistake, so God told them to wipe them out. So now it's time to kill them all, right? Well, notice this in Joshua chapter 9, verse 18. Joshua 9, verse 18. They've just found out that they've been duped. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. They just said that it was so important that we gave our word that we would not touch these people. Now we won't because we swore by Yahweh that we would not do this. That's how important the children of Israel saw this, is that they had made an oath, and even though God had told them to wipe them out, they had made an irreversible move. And so they decided not to wipe these people out. They had made an oath by the name of the Lord, and they were going to keep it. Go back to James chapter 5. Those are some helpful, I hope, examples of what an oath looks like. Here, James tells them not to swear, and he tells them not to swear by heaven, or by earth, or by any other oath. You've got to love that last one thrown in there, just basically includes everything. (laughs) Um, But he he does talk about heaven and earth, and, and that's interesting because we don't have time for it this morning, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is um, basically verbally attacking the Pharisees for the hypocrisy, and he attacks their oath-taking. And we know this from multiple documents, but that in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, were using their knowledge of the scripture and their knowledge of oral tradition to basically make promises that they didn't have to keep. So they would swear by something that would, if you knew the code words, would invalidate their oath. So they would make an agreement with someone and swear by the altar in the temple. And meanwhile, while they're swearing this to someone, they're, they're snickering. <laughs> we got this guy because we don't actually have to keep it because we swore by the altar. But if we swore by the gift on the altar, then we would have to keep it. 
Okay, there, there are multiple examples in Matthew 23 of this, but this is really, un, what Jesus is doing is he's uncovering the wickedness behind an oath made to God. Essentially what Jesus says is, all the oaths you make are before God because God is everywhere and he hears your, your oath. Don't break your promise. Keep your word. It is wicked, it is evil to try to sneak around God's laws in order to break your word. This is what James, I think, is getting at. He's actually quoting his older brother, Jesus, in doing this. In Matthew chapter 5, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells um, his followers not to take oaths. Now, I want you to go there real quick and see this. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. We're going a lot of places today. Because James is borrowing from a lot of places. Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. He tells his audience, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Even there, that quote indicates that there were, there were okay, sanctioned ways to do this. But then Jesus wants to, to, to up the ante. He wants to hold them to a higher standard. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now again, I, I don't think this is a blanket statement against oaths, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. But that's not the thrust. Jesus is not trying to make an excuse here. Jesus is trying to say in, in a very direct way, stop messing around with oaths. Stop adding these things to your speech. Just be honest. Be a truthful person. Be someone that when you speak, everybody else goes, okay, and takes you at your word. Right? We have these phrases that, we, that are quaint maybe now in, in this age, but my word is my bond. I'm, I'm as good as my word. I'm good for it. Right? Those kinds of phrases. This is what Jesus wanted his followers to be. Now, the reason I don't think it's a blanket statement against making oaths is because Jesus himself responds to an oath in his trial. The high priest basically uh, swears an oath and, and binds Jesus by the oath to answer his question, and Jesus goes ahead and answers it. And Jesus understands that the oath that was made requires, in some sense, a response. Jesus responded positively to the high priest, putting him under oath. And just like we would go into court and put our right hand down and say, or left hand, right hand up in the air, right? And to, to make an oath, to swear, to speak the truth, right? Nothing but the truth. So help me God. Right? That, that, that is basically what the high priest did to Jesus. And Jesus, under oath, responds. And I think that you can see this in a few other places as well. But again, we're not looking at the exception here. We're looking at the force of the argument is that these things should be few and far between and reserved for certain solemn circumstances. Okay? Um, it's interesting that right after Jesus responds to the oath, that his apostle Peter um, swears an oath that he doesn't know Jesus. Mere verses after, three times, a little a little servant girl comes up and Peter feels th so threatened by this servant girl that he starts swearing an oath that he does not know Jesus. That is a vain use of an oath. It is exactly what James is telling us not to do. Specifically because Peter is lying <laughs> under oath. So don't lie under oath and don't, put your, don't use an oath to make yourself sound more honest than you really are. The implication of all, of the, all of this is that we need to we do not need to employ an oath in our regular speech. In our normal, everyday speech, there's no need to invoke God to, to, to watch over us. We should just be honest, truthful people. If we are generally not normally to be trusted, what kind of witness are we? Yes, my Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. But you can't trust me, even though I follow him. You know, I, I was thinking of some illustrations of this, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to talk about the boy who cried wolf. And then I realized, I don't remember that story well enough to tell it accurately. So, sit back. Here's Aesop's fable. 
A shepherd boy tended his master's sheep near a dark forest not far from the village. Soon he found life in the pasture very dull. All he could do to amuse himself was to talk to his dog or play on his shepherd's pipe. One day as he sat watching the sheep and the quiet forest and thinking what he would do should he see a wolf, he thought of a plan to amuse himself. His master had told him to call for help should a wolf attack the flock and the villagers would drive it away. So now, though he had not seen anything that even looked remotely like a wolf, he ran toward the village, shouting at the top of his voice, Wolf! Wolf! As he expected, the villagers who heard the cry dropped their work and ran in great excitement to the pasture. But when they got there, they found the boy doubled up with laughter the trick he had played on them. A few days later, the shepherd boy again shouted, Wolf! Wolf! Again the villagers ran to help him only to be laughed at again. Then one evening, as the sun was setting behind the forest and the shadows were creeping out over the pasture, a wolf really did spring out from the underbrush and fell upon the sheep. In terror, the boy ran toward the village shouting, Wolf! Wolf! But though the villagers heard the cry, they did not run to help him as they had before. He cannot fool us again, they said. The wolf killed a great many of the boy's sheep, and then slipped away into the forest. And the moral of the story is that liars are not believed even when they speak the truth. If you are dishonest or lie and then try to make up for that by adding a a, a hearty I swear at the end of your sentence, you're not believable. And and especially when you begin to swear on an oath, you begin to bring God into your dishonesty. You begin to involve God and his reputation in your dishonesty. So what should we do? Well, in your notes, I have a little instead there. So instead, we should, number two, resolve to be simply honest so that your word will be trusted. Resolve to be simply honest so that your word will be trusted. Again, the problem in Jesus' time was that the religious leaders were weaseling their way over, around, and through oaths that they had made, which essentially gutted the oath of its purpose and power. Again, they were crying wolf. And so they were, they were gutting the power of an oath in the future. If they always made oaths and they always swore, well, then, then it would lose its power each time that they did it. So we should resolve to be simply honest. You know, and some of our brothers and sisters throughout church history, especially those from Anabaptist strains like the Amish or the Mennonites or some brethren churches, have taken this so far as to refuse to take oaths in court ever. I think that this is well-meaning, but wrong. What James is referring to in Jesus is a voluntary oath. When we enter the court of law, when we enter uh, the, the government that God has set up, We are in a different place and in a different situation. We are in a legal matter. We are in a very solemn place. So the point that that James is making is don't show up in court and swear an oath. What he's saying is don't in your normal speech, in your normal life, just consistently work to live a life of integrity so you don't need to swear. However, when we show up in court, we should follow the ways that our government has, has put it on us to, to swear, to show in that setting the solemnity of the setting, the seriousness of what is going on. Someone has been accused of a crime. And so life is on the line. Jail time is on the line. And so in that instance, I think that it is okay for us to take an oath. But, but note this, that the stakes are higher now, right? You had better tell the truth. This is, I think, where we need to go with thinking about what James and his brother Jesus have instructed us to do. Let's look at the second half of verse 12 in James chapter 5. After telling them not to swear, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The simplicity of those one word answers should be all that it takes. Now, obviously, you can't control someone else's paranoia or suspicion. Okay, but as much as it depends on you, just be honest, be believable, live a life that backs up your word. Again, we don't want to break our promises. We don't want to be people that break our promises because our God doesn't break his promises ever. We need to be the people that are simply 
honest. Now, there's also a, a, um, a threat on the end of this. So that you may not fall under condemnation, which sounds very similar to what James said in verse 9. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's a, a real seriousness to not abusing oaths or swearing. Because if you abuse those, there is judgment for that. And James also gives us this kind of warning back in chapter 2 as well. As we said in, in Exodus chapter 20, we want to not take the Lord's name in vain. And if we do, if this becomes a consistent life pattern and we are unrepentant, well, then that indicates a heart that does not care what the Lord says. And in that point, the church cannot confirm that this person is a follower of Jesus and judgment awaits. Again, how many of you have broken a promise? There's a whole lot of liars in here. All right. (laughs) Right? we've, We've broken promises. To God, to our spouse, to our family, to our boss. To, we, we've broken promises, haven't we? So as we think about this, if, if there is a consistent life of, of lying, of deceit, of falsehood, of exaggeration, then we really need to think about whether or not Jesus has changed our hearts. This is a warning, and it is meant to be a serious warning. It's not meant to be a little slap on the hand. This is meant to say, listen, if you consistently do this, this does not indicate a follower of Jesus. Now, I want you to hear me when I say consistently, right? Someone breaks a promise to you, you don't have any right to say, well, you're not a Christian. Right? So what we're talking about is talking about a life pattern, Okay? You'll notice that, that, that there is um, a quote in your notes that I think is really helpful at this point. Um, it's from a, a Bible scholar, C. Leslie Mitten, and he said, Our mere word, I think it's a good word, our mere word, the fact that the word comes out of our mouth, our mere word should be as utterly trustworthy as a signed document, legally correct and complete. Now, this is important for us to note. And so I, from he, at this point, I want, to, I want to talk about the implications of this. What's at stake? What is at stake in our honesty as, as believers, as a church? And I think there's several things at, at stake. And again, we want to remember that primarily we want to start with ourselves and the Christian community. We can look outside and look at the, 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 the destruction that comes from some of these things. But I want us to look at just a few things quickly here. What's at stake? Well, the first thing is at stake is the gospel. The good news. So there are several factors here. Um, what, I'm, what, I, what I hope you're not hearing today, and I will make this explicit right now, is I'm not saying, hey, everybody, do better. Let's all kind of get revved up and, yeah, we're going to be honest. Try harder. Because you'll fail. Right? How many of you have tried to beat something in your life by just trying harder, and it didn't work? Anybody? <laughs> this is not the church that's preaching works righteousness. You don't work your way into salvation. We, we want to say that we are sinners and we cannot please God just by trying to do more good than bad stuff, right? Well, I'm a good person. I mean, that just falls flat on its face. It's just a, it's just a really bad argument anyway, right? I'm just a good, I'm a good person. In comparison to what? I love, I love the one like, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> Praise God, you're not Hitler. I mean... If that's the standard you're holding yourself to, woo, jumped over that bar. But what if the standard is God himself and God's law? Well, then you're not very good at all, are you? And I'm not very good. In fact, we don't like looking at ourselves in light of God's law, do we? Because it's ugly. And, and that's the whole point. Because when we talk about our speech, we're talking about something that comes from our heart. Right? Um, some of you have, have let out uh, an expletive or profanity from time to time and thought, where did that come from? And the answer is very clear. It came from deep down inside you. That's where it came from. And that's important for us to acknowledge. How are we going to grow in this? We're going to grow in this by trusting the Lord to transform us. That is, it's Him in me, not me 
doing it, right? It's important. I need to do it, but I need to do it in his power and in his strength, acknowledging him. And it's important to note, too, that just because you're sitting here this morning does not mean Jesus is in you. You're not a good person because you walked in those doors. Anybody can walk in those doors. And just because you post Jesus-y things on your Instagram or because you're an American or because you grew up in a good family or, or whatever, none of that means that you're a Christian or you're a follower of Jesus. Because look at the followers of Jesus in the Bible. Look at yourself. Now, the way to eternal life, the way to forgiveness of sins is through the bloody cross of Jesus and his empty tomb. That's the only way. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. So I don't have good advice for you today. Okay, this is not like a self-help. This, this is good news today. There's good news that somebody kept the laws that you and I break. Somebody kept them for us in our place because we are sinners like our parents. My mom and dad are here today. They're sinners. Like my grandparents, they're sinners. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were sinners. And because God is good, he has to punish sin. It's not good if he, if he just sweeps our sin under the rug. That's not a good God. We deserve punishment. We've earned it. That's what our wages are. The wages of sin is death. But God, in his mysterious and great love, sent his only son to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we should have died. And that's a bad story, if not for Easter morning. Because on Easter morning, Jesus rose from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. And he proved that he offers good news by saying, if you will trust in his true words, if you trust in his death on the cross, then you have your sins forgiven and eternal life. And now you're in a place where you can grow because now you understand where the power is. The power is not in your will. The power is in he who is within us. So now, if you are a believer, now your good works are empowered by God's work in you. That's, that's the cool thing is it's, it's, it's the engine of God's power that we get our power from. So we want to be careful that we don't think of just what I have to do. That's performance. But we think about what has been done to enable us to have the power to do what God wants us to do. And that means it's grace all the way. What else is at stake? What else is at stake is God's name. God's name is at stake. In ancient days, your name was your reputation. So when we invoke God's name, we are putting God's reputation on the line in front of everyone to see. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says we're God's ambassadors. We represent God here on earth. We represent God here on earth. Oh man, that should be convicting. What a responsibility what a privilege. And we must remember the words that Solomon said in the book of Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We have had, we have been given power in our words. And sometimes we don't realize that. And we must be careful. So we can't be flippant or irreverent with our oaths, our vows, our promises. We can't do that. And we also can't throw God's name around. Oh my God. Why would you do that? To the God of the universe, just throw his name out there. Good Lord, why would, you, why, why would you use the name of your Savior in that way? Why would you conform your speech to the patterns of all those around us who don't love Jesus? Don't use the Lord's name like that. And if you are, stop. And if you can't, get someone to help you stop. And by the way, it works. There's someone sitting in this room right now that is having victory over using words like that because there's accountability. There's power in the name of the Lord. And so we must be careful how we use the Lord's name. What else is at stake? Our testimony is at stake. Our integrity is at stake. Anybody, anybody got an HPI bracelet on right now? Anybody have one? 
Ben's got a few. Jeremiah's got one. HPI. It's what all of our high schoolers are going to get at the end of this week at camp. Honesty, purity, and integrity. It's one of Hume Lake's, um, I mean, everybody at Hume Lake gets these uh, bracelets that say HPI to remind ourselves of honesty, purity, and integrity. And those come from two Psalms, Psalm chapter 15 and Psalm chapter 24. In Psalm chapter 24, that actually is where one of our songs that we sang this morning comes from. Uh, in that Psalm, the, the question is, who, who can, who can approach God? Who can, who can go up to God? Verse 3 of Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? It means who can go up to the place where God is worshiped? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Proverbs 10, 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked, perhaps by making an oath, will be found out. Proverbs 19, 1, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So I don't know if we've said it enough, but we need to be people of our word. We need to keep our word. We need to be simply honest. So parents, don't threaten your child with discipline and not follow through. What are you training your child to do? When you sign a contract, keep it. When you shake on something with a client, don't back out. God never breaks his promises. But because we're not God, when you break that promise, go in humility and apologize to the person that you broke the promise to. Are you trustworthy at work? Is your speech something that can be trusted? Are you a trustworthy boss? Are you a trustworthy employee? Do you reflect God to those at work? Are you honest on social media? What do you say online and how do you say it? And do you say and post things online that you would never say to someone in person? Yes, that's the answer. The answer is yes. Don't do that. We can easily fall into the trap of, well, it's just on a screen in front of me. I can say whatever I want. You know what? We see each other's posts. I see your interactions. We see what names people are calling other people. Be careful. Young people, when you use TBH, I know it's a way to tell people nice things on social media, to be honest. But listen, why don't you just honestly tell them those things, right? Instead of adding TBH onto it and then confusing all the old people. (laughs) There's not a vowel in there. I don't know. How do you... Public service announcement, TBH, to be honest. You're welcome. Okay, and and so some of you may be thinking this, and you're despairing today because you've developed patterns and rhythms in your life that you just noticed today because they're so normal. So you need to empower people in your life to call you on this. Hey, call me when I lie or when I shade the truth or when I exaggerate something, even just a little bit. Call me on it. Give someone the permission to do that. And then when they do it, don't get mad at them. You gave them permission. That is, that is a real, tangible way to change. Get someone to call you on it. Maybe you're a, a liar and you can't stop lying. It just comes out of your mouth. Don't hide in the darkness of your shame. Come out into the light and get help. Talk to some of your your trusted friends and ask them to pray for you. Talk to a leader here at Village that you trust. Find a solid Christian counselor who can lead you into the light of honesty. And last, an implication here is truth. Just truth itself. I wrote this for myself. Be careful of exaggeration, sarcasm, loopholing, I don't know if that's a word, and technicalities. Don't build little ways out with your words. If you have to explain why something isn't necessarily a lie, it's a lie. If you are saying, well, from a certain point of view, no, 
That means you're looking for a way out. Let's give ourselves to what Kent Hughes calls radical truthfulness. Just tell the truth. It'll be radical. It'll be crazy. Tell the truth. Now, some of you are like, yeah, let's tell the truth and just crush people with the truth. No, we don't crush people with the truth. We speak the truth. What are the next two words? In love. In love. We speak the truth in love. Wasn't it Jesus who said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free? What if every Christian at Village prayerfully committed to speaking in such a way that we're just different? What if our marriage reflects truth? There's a couple in here that in about 172 or three hours, something like that, are going to be promising things to each other in front of God and witnesses. That's serious. I told a lady last week that I've been married for 13 years. And she's like, wow, you're the first person I met who's been married uh, that long. (laughs) Now, I kind of chuckled too, but that is so sad. What if our, our marriages reflected God and his truth to the world? We must be those who are honest because truth is worth fighting for. And if truth erodes, so does the culture that's built on it. So all around us, from our neighbors to the president of the United States, we hear accusations of fake news, throwing this around from the Oval Office on down. There's not a lot of trust in our culture at large because there's so much lying going on. How much different would we be if we don't participate? So by the Spirit of God, may we be people who expose the darkness with the light of truth. Not so that we can go na 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 but so that we can shine God's light on darkness. We have to be the people that tell the truth. We have to be the people that when we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we mean no. So let's speak like we mean it. Father, thank you for this exhortation this morning. Lord, help us not to go away from here discouraged. Help us to go away from here encouraged because you keep your promises. You have given those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus a new heart. And so we can do this by the power of your Spirit. It may be a long slog. It may be a battle for the rest of our years here on earth. But we want to be committed to the truth. That we want to be people who speak truly. That our simple yes would engender trust in somebody else because we are a trustworthy person, because you are a trustworthy God. So Lord, let us go this week and put this into practice in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, on our sports teams, in the places where it's hardest, give us the most strength to be honest and truthful. In Jesus' name, amen.